If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. It is now time for our first reading of a band book. This one written by Amanda Gorman. The title, The Hill We Climb, an inaugural poem for the country. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time, where a skinny black girl, descended from slaves and raised by a single mother, can dream of becoming president, only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but this doesn't mean we're striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so that we can reach our arms out to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision 
that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't be in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy, and this ver effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith, we trust. For while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised but whole, benevolent but bold, fierce and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their blunders. But one thing is certain, if we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left. With every breath from our bronze-pounded chests, we will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the wind-swept northeast, where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover in every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country, our people, diverse and beautiful, diverse and dutiful, will emerge battered but beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Will you pray with me? Not all of us survived him, Holy One. His words divided families, stoked unfounded fear and inflamed extremism, that Baptist television star whose mic is finally and permanently off. He made some wild and painful accusations against you, Holy One, claiming that you send disease, destruction, and death as punishment for those he, not you, didn't like. His insistence on Christian power over Christian principle led us to this moment where we find ourselves reading about a former president now charged with 37 criminal counts and already convicted of several other things, 
elected by white evangelicals. We do not celebrate his death, Holy One. That would be to become him and to be unbecoming of a Christian. Besides, we can't waste a minute. He may be gone, but his theology isn't. It lives on in book bans, don't say gay campaigns, abortion bans, and Christian nationalism. There is undoing to be done. So we ask you to give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. If it is true that these three remain, faith, hope, and love, help us, Holy One, to live so that there is no doubt that the greatest of these is love. With tender hearts we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, oh, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and his, her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world, but those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who is called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth and his face unwrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here ends the reading inspired by our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. People are often surprised by Mayflower's sanctuary. First timers are not expecting it to look so New Englandy. No stained glass, no screens, no drum kit. It's actually difficult, even for those who have deep theological disagreements with us, to find our sanctuary offensive. As I have mentioned before, the paint color is aptly named agreeable gray. <laughs> it's not just the very meeting house look of the sanctuary that surprises people, though people often express surprise that there are Bibles everywhere in here. Apparently, our reputation as heretics comes with the assumption that because we are not orthodox, we must not read the Bible. This is not true, of course. You've just heard 44 verses. <laughs> and as we say in the United Church of Christ, our faith is 2,000 years old but our thinking is not. So we interpret the text with intellectual honesty, we practice theological humility, and as the poet says, await the wayward coming grace. The other thing people are surprised to find in this sanctuary are the boxes of tissues in every other pew. So a box of tissues is within reach or within passing distance from wherever you happen to be sitting. To be candid, they are not Kleenex Ultra Soft or Puffs Plus Lotion. They are definitely not listed among Good Housekeeping's five best tissues rated for absorbency, strength, and thickness. 
the pew tissues are decidedly one ply. But that's something you can take up with the trustees. <laughs> On one hand, it should be so it should surprise no one that there are tissues spread around the sanctuary. After all, the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America ranked Oklahoma City in the top 10 of the most challenging places to live with allergies. But allergies are not why we have boxes of tissues in the pews. They are there because we expect to be moved when we are here. That is, we expect to be prompted and provoked, comforted and challenged, to experience highs and lows, to be deeply affected by music, liturgy, and community. We expect to feel something when we're here, and every so often those feelings spill out of our eyes. So we like to have tissues at the ready. This is likely what surprises people about the tissues. While Mayflower is part of the United Church of Christ denomination, we come out of the Congregationalist tradition. Congregationalists are not known for our tears, or for our hallelujahs, for that matter. We lean closer to our frozen, chosen Presbyterian siblings than to our hand-raising, speaking-in-tongues Pentecostal kin, I suppose one might say that keeping tissues in the pews is our way of splitting the difference. Even though we have tissues in the pews, which again should indicate that we expect to use them, people are often caught off guard about crying in church, whether the tears are happy or sad. After all, crying in public is not something we get applause for, but rather something we try to do only when we are alone, lest someone see. In fact, we are taught to hide our tears or to not cry at all, especially if we are socialized as men. Most of us have been told one or all of the following. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Don't be a crybaby. Boys don't cry. Never let them see you cry. There are some of us who can't remember the last time we cried. This was true for my colleague, Reverend Benjamin Perry, who wrote the book that prompted this sermon series. Ben opens his book this way. I can't remember when I stopped crying. I never woke and decided, no more tears for me. There was no pivotal moment, no traumatic incident in which I wept openly, was gruesomely mocked, and swore off tears forever. Yet by my early 20s, as surely as if I had cauterized my tear ducts, I hadn't wept in years. If I wrote this about any other crucial biological process, that statement would be remarkable. Imagine opening a book by saying, I haven't pooped since Bush was president. <laughs> or, it's been a decade since I last sneezed. Such a confession would be headline news, or at the very least, you'd suggest I consult a doctor. But not crying is not only unremarkable, it's oddly normative. 
This is in part because of those phrases I listed earlier. We are repeatedly encouraged not to cry. Even the way we comfort each other can communicate this message. There, there, don't cry, everything will be all right. As if not letting tears roll down our cheeks will somehow settle our hearts and minds. The opposite is actually true. Crying is deeply tied to our parasympathetic nervous system, and that crying helps to calm and restore our body to homeostasis. This explains why, although we may cry during periods of heightened stress, more often we begin to cry after a crisis has passed, as our heart rate and breathing slows. Paradoxically, however, research suggests that the act of crying also increases sympathetic nervous system activity, which is the system that feeds somatic arousal. Studies that measured participants' reactions to emotional films found that their heart rates remained steady in the minute immediately preceding tears, but significantly increased while they were sobbing. So even though crying's onset often accompanies recover from heightened stress, once tears begin, we experience an echo of sorts, a reverberation in our nervous system of the crisis that has just passed. In some significant way, our bodies are physically returned to that initial distress. Many people report feelings of clarity after an intense bout of weeping, our bodies are offering us a gift, an opportunity to process that intense emotional experience in a hopefully safer setting. But crying does not just help us process things in our bodies. Tears are deeply connected to our spiritual wellness, how attuned we are to the spirit and our openness to transformation. At least that's what we learn from all of those Bibles we have in the sanctuary. As Ben writes, crying is a theme that repeats itself throughout the Bible. Crying itself is not necessarily salvific, but it creates the circumstances in which God fosters new life. Perhaps the best example of this is the tears Jesus sheds over Lazarus. Recorded in the Gospel of John, the story goes that Mary and Martha sinned for Jesus because their brother has fallen gravely ill. Lord, the one you love is sick. Mary writes to Jesus confidently, and Jesus replies confidently, this sickness will not end in death. When he finally arrives in Judea, however, Lazarus has already been dead and buried for four days. Mary brings Jesus to the tomb, setting the stage for one of Christ's most famous miracles, the part of the story that has transfixed painters and pastors alike are Jesus' words at the mouth of the burial chamber, Lazarus, come out! Upon hearing Jesus, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. It is a dramatic scene. I mean, who doesn't love a biblical mummy? But 
before any miracle happens, when Jesus arrives at the tomb, we get the shortest verse in all of scripture. Jesus wept. Before Jesus does anything, he simply sits with his friends amid their sorrow. He doesn't try to fix that pain or diminish it, nor does he keep busy or distract himself from the heartbreak that hangs in the air. He is fully present and joins them in their weeping. What a gorgeous image of how we're called to show up for other people in the middle of their grief. It's a countercultural act that transgresses expected narratives. When people are in the throes of suffering, a sympathy card or hot dish are certainly welcome. But a comforting, non-anxious companion in crying is worth their weight in pot roast. When I was doing a chaplaincy, when I was doing a chaplaincy internship at a hospital, Ben continues, my supervisor told me something I will never forget. When we are sitting with weeping people, we often place a hand on their back and rub a small circle. Well-intentioned though this may be, this gesture can communicate to the crier our own anxiety, our desire for them to stop crying, to cease doing what they're doing. Far better, she said, to simply place your hand on their back and leave it still. A gesture that says simply, I'm here, it's okay to cry, you are not alone. I don't fully, I don't profess to fully understand Christ's miracles, but I understand his weeping. When we let our eyes run and hearts spill into that liminal space between our living and beloved dead, we resurrect those for whom we grieve in ways that transcend physical reality. Many people report that when they are in the depths of their mourning, they feel those they've lost to be palpably near. Our tears seem to offer loss a blurry corporal form, something between a memory and a ghost. Jesus' tears prefigure Lazarus's resurrection. Knowing that he will raise Lazarus, Jesus resurrects his friend through these shared tears before he ever awakens his body. We see this transformational power of tears throughout scripture. If we go to our earliest stories, those found in the book of Genesis, we find the story of Joseph who had a coat of many colors and the gift of prophecy. You remember the story. After Joseph's father gave him that coat of many colors, his jealous brothers threw him into a pit and then sold him into slavery. The too long didn't read rest of the story is this. Joseph winds up in Egypt, first enslaved, but then appointed as Pharaoh's chief advisor. After foretelling seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, Joseph is appointed by Pharaoh to oversee grain distribution for the entire kingdom. As abundance turns to hunger, people begin to travel to Egypt from surrounding nations in hopes that they might be fed. Among these travelers are Joseph's brothers. When they arrive, they do not recognize Joseph, but Joseph immediately recognizes the ones who left him for dead. 
Over the course of this part of the narrative, the text explicitly records Joseph crying two separate times. First, when his, one of his brothers expresses remorse and anguish at the violence they committed against him, Joseph leaves the room and begins to weep, lamenting relationships that have been shattered and the profoundly mixed emotions that greet a chance to mend them. Joseph emerges with a tentative hope that this encounter might begin to heal this deep well of hurt and chooses to help his brothers. The second time Joseph cries happens when his brothers return from Canaan with their youngest brother Benjamin in order to prove to Joseph that they can be trusted. At this moment, Joseph is overwhelmed by emotion. Deeply moved at the sight of their brother, his brothers, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep, the story says. The New Revised Standard Version tells it this way, Joseph wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard and the house of Pharaoh heard about it. It is then that something remarkable happens. It is in this second bout of weeping that Joseph is able to find meaning and purpose in all that has happened to extend grace to his brothers and to take the next faithful step. These crying episodes, writes Ben, are not incidental details. They arrive at pivotal moments of transformation and the tears themselves are transformative. Tears usher Joseph through suffering like salve upon a wound, tears do not erase pain or eliminate scars, but they offer a chance for the body to heal itself. What overwhelms me about this story is that these tears don't just save Joseph, they actually rescue all of Israel. Jacob's 12 sons become the founders of the 12 tribes, the apocryphal forerunners of every Israelite descendant. Without the food that Joseph provided, famine would have overcome the family and there would have been no 12 tribes. The survival of an entire people grows out of tears. The last book of the Bible has crying in it too. The importance of our tears again runs all the way through the Bible. There's that infamous verse in the book of Revelation found in chapter 21, the promise that in the new earth, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Of this passage, Ben notes, I used to read that as a promise that God's future would be a world without weeping until someone pointed out that they read that passage simply as a promise that every tear would be held. For who's to say God doesn't collect those tears rather than dispose of them? Utopian fiction doesn't pretend that all our problems must be solved before birthing something new. Paradise is what we build in the middle of the mess Tears lubricate that journey, aligning us with our true desires, helping us relinquish narratives that no longer service us, and cultivating courage to pursue new life among ruins of old pain. 
In other words, tears are transformative. I dare say this isn't what most of us think about crying. We are worried about someone seeing us. We worry about being a, quote, ugly crier. We see it as weakness or as a bother or a mess. But given these traditional understandings of crying, tears, weeping, sobbing, sniffling, turning on the waterworks, that these traditional understandings might not be the most helpful or healthy, or according to the text, spiritually whole, perhaps now is the time for us to unlearn and relearn. So this week, let's spend some time thinking about our tears, some questions we might ask ourselves, we might ask each other. What is your earliest memory of crying? What were you taught about tears growing up? How were those lessons taught? When was the last time you cried from pain, from fear, from sadness? When was the last time you cried out of wonder, out of joy, out of gratitude? What did you feel before you cried, while you cried, after you cried? It is possible, beloveds, that some of us will not be able to answer one or more of those questions. That does not mean that you are doing it wrong or that you have been a failure or that you are bad. It is simply an invitation for us to tend to those questions and to our tears more intentionally. According to the text, our own salvation depends on it and perhaps so much more. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.